invite you to take your copy now of God's Word. And uh, the words to which I would call your attention are to be found in verses 34 to 39 of Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to 39. This is God's Word. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and her daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The grass withers And the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you acknowledging that you are a very great king. You are the king of all kings, and you are the one who has caused your word to be set down for us so that your church might be preserved for all time, that we might be comforted in our afflictions And so that we might be guided in wisdom all the days of our life. We ask that you would give us that wisdom this morning. We pray for the work of your Holy Spirit amongst your people. In your name we ask it. Amen. As as southern people, as good southern people, we are very familiar with fanaticism, aren't we? I am pretty sure that somewhere on my birth certificate, I am listed not only as a male and as a Caucasian, but as an Auburn fan. You see, that part of my life was never in question. Now, for the most part, that has been faithfully handed down generation to generation. My grandmother, my great-grandmother began out, began. (laughs) You can tell I went to Auburn. Um, But... um, Uh, began when it was the Cal College Alabama Polytechnic Institute. And so from there on, I do have one defector in my family. And we are, we're aware of that. Um, But for the most part, it's been handed down from generation to generation. And coming up in that sort of a situation, um, I, I have seen the sort of absurd lengths that college football fans will go to express their loyalty to one team or another. Uh, I used to be one who would pound the floor and kick the dog when somebody did something that I didn't like because, of course, given my extensive experience with college football coaching, I'm an expert. But when you come to Christ, life begins to change, doesn't it? Suddenly, your priorities change. When the Lord gets a hold of a man's heart, suddenly, some of the things that used to hold real importance for that man are not so important anymore. 
you begin to see life not so much in terms of the temporal things around you. You begin to realize that you're surrounded by men and women and children who have eternal souls. And that every one of those souls is one day going to face an eternal judgment. And that that eternal judgment has nothing to do with what color those people paint their faces. It has nothing to do with the statistics that you have memorized. It has only to do with one thing. Who are you in Christ Jesus? As Jesus instructs his disciples here, you can imagine that there must have been some furrowed brows as he's talking about their commission, the mission that he is sending them out. He said things to them like, you're going to be taken before courts and you're going to be beaten. And father is going to deliver over his son to death and vice versa. Children are going to be turned against their parents. And by the way, don't fear the men who can put you to death. Fear the one who can cast you body and soul into Gehenna. Because listen, the one who won't confess me before men, I won't confess before my father. And so you, if you put yourself in the disciples' shoes up to this point, you've been listening faithfully and you, know, you can sort of imagine the men and women and even the children who are gathered around Christ and they've got their hands in their pockets or behind their back and you know they're kind of digging their feet into the, the soil and they're listening and they're getting a little bit uncomfortable and they're saying, boy, I don't know if I want to be a part of this after all. And you can imagine, even amongst the apostles, they're saying, okay, this started out real good. I, I Proclaiming the kingdom, that sounds good. Casting out demons, real cool. Healing people of their illnesses and every disease and sickness, I like that part. But now you're telling me I'm going to do all of those things and after all of that, my life is going to be threatened? And what do you think might be going through those minds at that moment? Maybe the same thing that was going through Isaiah's mind in Isaiah chapter 6 when the Lord said, listen, you're going to go and preach and nobody's going to listen to you. They're thinking, I wonder if that roast is still in the crock pot back at home. The expectations that Jesus begins to set for his men doesn't exactly align with their minds. Surely some of them were reasoning in their heads, aren't we, aren't we healing people? Aren't we making people better? Won't they be glad to receive us? And so Jesus, here he begins, if you look at verse 34, he says, do not think. You see what he's doing? How's he preparing his men? He's preparing them by telling them how they ought to think. As a true king, he's not just commanding their actions, he is commanding the very way that they think about their mission. He says to them, do not think. What he shows them here is that in some ways, the mission that they are about to embark on 
is a test of their faith. And what he shows, what Jesus shows in, in real simple terms is that sincere faith, sincere faith is proved by total devotion to Christ. Sincere faith is proved by total devotion to Christ. And we see this, first of all, in verses 34 to 36, as Jesus outlines the purpose of his mission. The purpose of his mission. And notice what Jesus said again, do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace. What do you think he's doing there? He's just like your parents. When, when they're talking to you and they want to emphasize something to you, they're going to say it twice. Do not sneak out of the house. I'm going to say it one more time. Don't sneak out of the house. Here Jesus says to them, don't think that I have come to bring peace. I have not come to bring peace. I'm bringing a sword. And so the first thing that Christ wanted them to notice in terms of the purpose of his mission is that he is bringing a sword. Jesus wields a sword. Go back with me just for a moment to Psalm chapter 45. Here the psalmist is reflecting on the incarnation of Christ. Psalm 45 verse 1, he says, My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty ride out victoriously. For the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness, let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. What's he saying there? With your right hand, let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. What does he mean? Take your sword out of its sheath and use it for awesome and mighty deeds. And Jesus reminds us here, look, I am coming with a meek spirit, but I am coming to meekly bear the sword. Here, we have an image of Israel right on the cusp before they are going into the promised land. And do you remember, going back to Joshua chapter 5, there's this interesting scene. Um, Joshua is, maybe he's walking, he's, he's just outside of the gates of Jericho, and they are preparing to go on the Lord's mission and to march around the gates of, uh, uh, the walls of Jericho and to blow their horns. And perhaps we see that Joshua at the end of chapter 5 is, is he's praying, maybe he's asking the Lord for courage, Lord make me a brave man. Help me to fulfill your law, not to be fearful, to do all that you're calling me to do. And it says that, that Joshua lifted up his eyes and he saw a man standing with his sword in his hand. And Joshua said to him, are you, are you on our side or are you on their side? And the man standing there said, I'm not on either side. That man was 
the angel of the Lord. It was the Lord Jesus Christ. And here, as Jesus begins to send his men out to the lost sheep of Israel, that same angel of the Lord, now incarnate, is wielding his sword again. But he's not calling his men to go out and to vanquish their enemies. He's not calling them to go out and shed blood yet. He is calling them to wield the sword of the Spirit. Their calling is to proclaim the kingdom. This is the sword that Christ has entrusted to His men to proclaim His kingdom to His people. Notice what it says, I have not come to bring peace where? To the earth. Now this is where we need to be a little bit careful about how we understand this passage. Because the Greek term... Um, that is here translated earth, can also be translated land. And I would suggest to you that in this particular context, what Jesus is saying is that I have not come right now to bring peace, not to the earth, but to the land. Why would that be important? Well, because the nature of the apostles' calling. Remember, to whom were they to go? Not to the Gentiles, not to the Samaritans, but to the lost house of Israel. Jesus is confining their mission to the lost house of Israel. And what is Jesus saying? I don't want you to expect that right now, this land promise that was given to Abram is going to be restored to Israel. That's not your mission. David's reign brought peace to Israel. You remember in 2 Samuel chapter 7, what do we read there? And Israel had rest from all her enemies. This is the expectation in Jesus' day. The Messiah is going to come. He's going to bring peace to all the land. And Jesus says to them, no, I am not bringing peace to the land right now. Instead, like the early reign of David, the messianic kingdom is going to produce war before it produces peace. Notice in verses 35 to 36 that Jesus causes division in his mission. I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. So as the gospel now is being introduced to the people of God, as it goes out, as the apostles preach, what is going to happen in that preaching? Families are going to be divided. A father is going to be divided from his son. God is going to call a son to faith and the father will be left aside. A daughter will come to faith and a mother will not. And what's going to happen is that the ancient warfare that we read about in Genesis 3.15 is going to be revealed. The sons of God are going to be set against the sons of the devil. And the sons of the devil will seek physically to harm the sons of God so that the person's Household will become his enemies. Before, under Joshua's reign, 
the Jews were going to go out and divide themselves from the Gentiles. Drive out the enemies by the sword. Conquer the land and subdue the land here. Family will be divided from family. It's not going to be Jew against Gentile. My friends, it will be Jew against Jew. This is exactly what we see happening in the first century. Go with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 for just a second. There are, biblically speaking, there are a couple of reasons for a couple of reasons that the Bible, that Christ permits divorce. And one of those reasons is for abandonment. And I want you to read with me 1 Corinthians 7, verse 12. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord. And and what Paul is saying there is that Jesus didn't specifically speak to this matter during his earthly ministry. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, literally Jesus says, You must let him go. What's happening? Well, in that first century church, the gospel comes to Corinth. Paul is preaching perhaps somewhere in the town square. And the husband comes to faith and the wife doesn't. And so the believers are saying, what do we do in that sort of a situation? My wife, I've told her the gospel. I'm pretty sure that I communicated it clearly. But she won't come to faith. What do I do? Paul is saying, well, if she consents to live with you, remain with her. But if she sues out a divorce, you have no obligation. She must go, and vice versa. What's happening is that the gospel is dividing households when the gospel comes. That's exactly what we see. Why is this? Is it because of the ineffectiveness of the gospel of Jesus Christ? No, it is because of the hardness of the unbelieving heart that is being put on display. J.C. Ryle, commenting on this, says, So long as one man believes and another remains unbelieving, so long as one is resolved to keep his sins and another is desirous to give them up, the result of the preaching of the gospel must needs be division. Do you see When we preach the gospel, what's going to happen is some will be unified, but it will divide you from others. For this, the gospel is not to blame, but the heart of man. Jesus' mission, as he comes, is not just to bring unity, it is to divide. The preaching of the gospel is going to reveal two things. Who is on the Lord's side and who is not? 
But the second thing that we see is the demand of Christ's mission. Not just the purpose of Christ's mission, but the demand of Christ's mission in verses 37 to 39. What does Christ demand of His followers? The first thing that He demands from His followers is your deepest affection. He demands your deepest affection. Notice what he says in verse 37. The one who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, immediately it becomes apparent why this is important. You imagine that son sitting in the synagogue. Paul is preaching. Reasoning with him from the Scriptures. And he says, I believe that. And that boy goes home. His father has never heard the Gospel. And he presents the Gospel to his father. He says, Dad... Listen to what I heard from the Scriptures. Let me explain it to you. And his father, rather than coming to faith, looks at him and he says, what are you talking about? You rascal. You renounce that garbage or you get out of my house. What's the son going to do? Well, these words are going to ring in his ears. Do I obey my father or do I obey Christ? Do I listen to my mother or do I listen to Christ. Jesus demands your total devotion. Or in other words, a half-hearted disciple is no disciple at all. The one who loves family more than Christ is not worthy of Christ. Why can he say that? Well, Because your mother and your father are worth many sparrows, Jesus has said. But Jesus Christ has infinite worth. You can tell that a man has rightly valued Christ when he is willing even to set aside family relations in order to be obedient to Christ. He's not saying to you, listen, I want you to prove your fidelity to me by right now marching out of your parents' home." or by putting your parents to death with the sword. That's not what Jesus is saying. What He is saying to you is that if there is a choice to be made, whether you will obey Me or obey your parents, you must choose Me. As I was thinking about that this week, I'm thinking, well, why? I wonder why He might say, why wouldn't He say your spouse? Why might He not say, you ought to love Me? You must love Me more than your spouse. I think in a way, Jesus is saying this in a way that even the children can understand. Even the little ones who are gathered around at their parents' feet, who are listening to Jesus' message, can understand when He said, you must love Me more than your mommy and your daddy, or you are not worthy of Me. In the nation of Laos, the people there are severely 
persecuted if you come to Christ. And recently the story was told of a a couple of young girls named Tan and Tan. They were aged 17 and 15. And they were listening to the preaching of the gospel and they came to faith in Christ. But their families did not. And immediately, upon coming to faith, Tan and Tan were harassed by their family. Their mother and the rest of their family were aggressively pressuring the girls to travel to another city to prostitute themselves and send money back to the family. What do they do? You submit to mother and father? The girls stood firm. They stood against this pressure because they know that they cannot submit to their family's corrupt plans. They cannot sin against Christ. He demands their total devotion. They are refusing to marry unbelieving spouses. Why? Because they are devoted to Christ. Even though their family tries to arrange these kinds of unions for them, Christ demands your total devotion. There can be no affection in your life above Him. Listen, or you have not understood Him rightly. Not only does Jesus demand your total, your utmost affection, He also demands your sacrifice. Look at verses 38 and 39. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So there are two times that we see this. You're not worthy of me. You don't understand me. You haven't rightly valued me. The cross in this day represented not, not so much. We, we think about the cross and we think, okay, that's where Jesus was sacrificed. He laid down his life and he offered it in our behalf. And so you might think, okay, to take up my cross, what does that mean? It means to sacrifice on behalf of other people. And, and that's, that's a good thought. But for, for this time, to take up your cross, or we could translate that to receive your cross, meant that you would subject yourself even to state persecution if it came to it, up to and including capital punishment for the cause of Jesus Christ. The cross was a shameful and a humiliating way to die. It was not just capital punishment. It was the lowest form meant for the worst criminals. And Jesus is saying to his men, if you are not prepared to suffer that kind of death, not just to be rejected by your family, but to be rejected by the state, to be determined and uh, declared guilty before your friends, before your neighbors, to lose your whole reputation, to set aside everything that you've built up for yourself on this earth. If you are not willing to put that on the board for my sake, to follow me, you're not worthy of me. You must be ready to embrace death. And, and again, this can be and probably ought to be translated, not take up your cross, but if you do not receive your cross. That is, for each and every one of you, as my apostles, as the ones I am sending out, I have appointed for you the way by which you will die. 
And even if I call you to die in a humiliating way, if you deny me, you're not worthy of me. The true disciple of Christ will love Christ more than anything else, and he will embrace the death that Christ has appointed for him. But notice also that the true disciple will give away his life. Verse 39. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus closes with kind of a paradox. It doesn't make sense on the surface, does it? Whoever finds his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What is Jesus saying to us? Not only only is the disciple of Christ willing to set down his physical life for the cause of Christ, but the disciple of Christ is willing to set aside his personal ambitions and endeavors in order to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a true disciple. Turn over with me to Philippians chapter 3. At this point in Philippians, Paul is is talking about his own personal ambition. And and he had reminded the Jews there in Philippi that, that he had set his heart and mind on becoming the Pharisee of Pharisees. He didn't want, it wasn't just his ambition to be faithful to the law and a prosecutor of the law. Paul's ambition was to be known for being a prosecutor of the law. He he did not want just to be good at his profession. He wanted other people who were good in his profession to look up to him as the professor of professors. And so he set himself to this task, studying, doing everything by the strictest letter of the law so that men would respect him. Notice what he says, beginning in verse 7 of Philippians 3. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. What's he saying there? He's not just saying, you know, I I decided to sacrifice everything for Christ because I thought that would be a good thing to do. What Paul Paul is saying is that that my faith in Christ was demonstrated in that I saw Jesus as more valuable than any ambition that I had for myself. So I threw it away for Him. To gain Him. He, he for me is the pearl of great price. I went to the field and I saw there, buried in the field, a pearl of great price and I sold everything I had to get that field. Why? Because the pearl is in it. Indeed, I count everything as lost, Paul said in verse 8. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. There's no, in other words... There's no statistic, no victory, 
that is as valuable to me as knowing Christ. No fact of the universe so valuable to me as knowing Christ. There's no honor, there's no accolade in my life that is as valuable as knowing Christ. I set it all aside. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. I throw them on the dung heap. Why? So that I might gain Christ. Because He said to me, if you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. The true disciple. How do I know if I'm a true disciple of Christ? Do I love Him more than anything in this world? Am I willing to set down even my physical life so that I might serve Him? Have I set aside my ambitions? I think one simple prayer. When is the last time that you prayed something like this? Lord, my life is yours. Do with it what you want. Lead me wherever you want me to go. I give up my family relations. I give up my personal ambitions. I embrace even death if that is your will for me. Put a desire within me to follow you no matter the cost. Because sincere faith is proved by a total devotion to Christ. Those who truly possess Christ are only those who treasure Him above all things. You possess Christ when you are willing to let go of family and personal dreams to follow Him. He requires your deepest devotion. Why can Jesus say this? These are radical things. Surely not intended for 21st century Western people. Jesus can say this for two infinite reasons. One, He has infinite worth. There is nothing greater in all creation than God Most High. Nothing greater. Communion with Him is the believer's true delight. And nothing comes before devotion to Christ. And there is no pressure or affliction that can separate Him from Christ. Secondly, because the true believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And do you know what the Holy Spirit's chief ambition is? To exalt Jesus Christ. And if He lives within you, then His ambition becomes your ambition. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so grateful to You that You do not withhold hard words from us. But as we read and consider these words, Lord, our our thoughts immediately go to our own insufficiency and our lack. We are idolaters at heart. We are willing to put any number of things before our devotion to You. 
Some of us perhaps have not taken one moment to think, well, I wonder what Christ wants me to do. So I ask that you would provoke us even now to declare a wholehearted devotion to you. Some of us perhaps by going to to difficult places to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ. We ask that you would have your way with us, Lord. For we are not our own. But we body and soul belong to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.